The Leader Assistant Podcast exists to encourage and challenge assistants to become confident, game-changing leader assistants. If you need to impress the board or your company's clients, your favorite vendors, maybe the leadership team, maybe your admin team, uh, maybe your families or your colleagues' families, if you need to impress them this holiday season with a carefully and craftily packaged wine and handwritten note gift pack, check out Elkhorn Peak Cellars. They're a family-owned vineyard and winery on the south end of the Napa Valley. This dynamic father-daughter duo of Ken and Elise and their team can accommodate large or small orders for all of your holiday gifting needs this season. So visit elkhornpeak.com slash leader assistant ASAP to get your holiday wine packages ordered in time for the holidays. Now, an important note for gift pack arrival before Christmas Orders must be received no later than December 11th if you're on the East Coast, and they can't be received later than December 18th if you're on the West Coast. So December 11th is your deadline to get things in before Christmas if you're on the East Coast, and if you're on the West Coast, uh, December 18th is your deadline. Oh, and did I mention they sent me some wine a while back, and it was very, very delicious? Definitely check out Elkhorn Peak Cellars at elkhornpeak.com slash leader assistant now to order a carefully packaged wine plus handwritten note gift pack from Elkhorn Peak. All right, welcome to episode 142. Today I'm sharing a webinar replay from my friend Megan Strout at TAC Advisors. She had a conversation with Lucretia Adamski at Salesforce. And Lucretia and I have known each other for a while, and um, I'm planning to have her on the show as a one-on-one interview in the future as well. But in the meantime, uh, Lucretia and Megan chat about planning events in a post-COVID world. So I hope you enjoy this replay. Check out the show notes at leaderassistant.com slash 142 to sync with TAC Advisors and Lucretia um, as well. But yeah, enjoy the conversation and we'll talk soon. Hello, everyone. My name is Megan Strout and I am the CEO of TAC Advisors. And today I'm joined by Lucretia Adamski, who is an executive assistant at Salesforce and also a coach for at TAC Advisors. And in a moment, I'm going to allow her to introduce herself and share a little bit more about uh, why we decided to do this webinar today. Awesome. So Lucretia, um, go ahead and just tell us a little bit more about you and your career and why we decided to do this webinar today. Sure. Hi, everyone. Um, As Megan said, my name is Lucretia, and I am based out of Northern Virginia. Um, I have about 20 years of experience as an admin plus professional. And throughout my career, I've supported two presidents and one executive vice president in two different industries. Currently, I support the president of a global sales division at Salesforce. And I have managed and planned events and meetings in almost every stage of my career, ranging from executive retreats and offsites to sales kickoff and symposia, even doing bring your kid to work day programs. And after a year and a half of virtual meetings, I am so glad that we're able to start planning and delivering in-person events for our companies and teams. You know, but if I'm being honest, it was intimidating to organize my first executive offsite earlier this year. The guidance around travel requirements and on-site health and safety protocol 
has evolved a lot and it's still evolving. And that can make the planning process more complicated, but not impossible. And the reality is everyone isn't willing or able to travel. And so I want to talk about building flexibility into your event plans to accommodate remote and in-person attendees. So today we're going to focus on hybrid offsite meetings and how to navigate the planning process for a safe and productive event. Awesome. Thanks so much. So um, you recently just did a, a, one of your biggest hybrid offsite events. Um, and so you've had some people joining us from both, uh, I think, uh, Europe and then here. And so um, when you were uh, tasked with this project, can you tell me a little bit more about, you know, outside of the original stuff that you normally do for planning events in regards to like, you know, who, what, where, when, and why, you know, what were some of the other steps that you had to take in considerations to make sure this was as seamless of an event as possible for those who could attend in person and then also those who had to unfortunately stay remote? Sure. So first thing I did is to consider the transmission rates and trends in the local or the location of the event. That's going to be determined by the CDC, state and local government. The CDC actually has a great tracker that breaks down trends across the U.S. It's a CDC tracker by County View. From there, you would check the capacity guidelines for meetings and events. That's something that's usually going to be posted on a state department um, or your state's website. And in some cases, depending on where you work, the company will have guidelines to ensure the safety of its employees. So you want to make sure you follow that, too. From there, you want to figure out who's going to be attending in person and virtually, because as I said before, some people aren't willing to travel, especially on commercial flights. They could have an underlying health condition or be a caretaker of a loved one that does. And then on the other hand, there may be some attendees that won't meet the vaccine travel requirements. And we just actually shared with me and I dropped into the chat, uh, the CDC uh, tracker, which I think is great. Now, um, in regards to some of these guidelines, were you instructed at all by Salesforce about, you know, within your company who could and could not attend? Or was it really solely based on what was going on with each country or each state? It was primarily based on what was happening in the countries um, and the states where we were holding our events. And um, we have a team that is monitoring the trends all the time for us. So we're very fortunate that we have that um, for us. But again, they were following the information that was um, posted on government and state websites. Yeah. And then um, what I think is you know interesting, and it is, it is what I've been able to see, especially over the past few months, is that, you know, testing, testing for people attending events, conferences seems to be a little bit more accessible. So can you tell me a little bit more about how you would address testing um, for this particular meeting? Yeah, I mean, there could be different sets of requirements for domestic and international travelers. And you can find that information if you're working through a travel agency or with the airline that your attendees will be using, even checking out the federal websites. Another great resource is Test for Travel. And what they do is break down the requirements based on the traveler's city of origin and destination. And they also look at the re-entry. And so that brings me to fit to fly testing. So in a lot of cases, passengers are required to show a negative test result before they board the plane. Um, Some are also um, 
required to do that when they enter the hosting country or even for reentry into their home country. Some airlines also provide a list of approved test sites or even um, a list of approved um, at-home test kits so that they can test before they um, board their planes. Yeah, and this is great because I know even for people who aren't planning events this uh, holiday season, there's probably people who are starting to travel for the first time to go visit family members and friends or maybe go on holidays outside of the country. I know a lot yeah. of countries are requiring these vaccines before you mm-hmm. go. And so I'm going to have to uh, take a look at this test for travel website because I know there's <laughs> destinations I'm looking to go to that require that as well. So I think that's awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, well, what else do we need to consider then for people who are, um, you know, doing international travel? Yeah, international travel can be tricky because um, not all the countries accept um, the vaccines that are given abroad. So you'll want to make sure that you compare what vaccines are accepted in the hosting country to the vaccines that your attendees have been given. So I'll give an example where I had um, some of my attendees would have needed to quarantine because they were based in the UK and there was a specific vaccine that the US did not recognize at one point. I'm not sure if that's changed or not. But because of that, you know, we really didn't think it was right to have our, our attendees quarantine. So we made the decision to have them just attend virtually. Okay, great. And then the people who were domestic, you didn't have to fly, what were you requiring for that? Typically, you would just ask for proof of vaccination or a negative test result before arrival. Okay, great. And so um, so now we've kind of talked about a little bit of what you took into consideration for physically getting people to the event. And so how did you approach the agenda um, in building out what this program was going to look like? Because you said like half of your uh, attendees were come from Europe and couldn't attend and had to, to be virtual. So how did you accommodate that to try to make that feel as inclusive as an, of an experience as possible? Yeah. So my event, uh, one of my events had about 40 people um, and it was about 50-50 in person and virtual. So um, I made sure to discuss the flow of the meeting with the stakeholder. Um, in this case, happened to be my executive. And so I really wanted to think through what the level of interaction for the meeting was going to be. And this is important when you're planning um, your AV meets. So, for example, if the meeting is going to be more of a strategic planning session with lots of brainstorming, you can expect a lot of back and forth and spontaneous dialogue. But if it's going to be driven mostly by presentations and readouts, you'll probably only have a handful of speakers at a time. You're also want to going to consider the time zones for your remote presenters because you probably won't want to have someone in Australia presenting at 12 p.m. Eastern. I think that's like 2 a.m. their time. Um, and so you should also make sure you build in enough breaks. Uh, a lot of times, you know, the people who are holding the meetings, they want to have all these things discussed and you do have to push back and and. Uh, make sure that you're incorporating enough time to kind of step away from the screen. It's, it's a toll on your remote participants. And I think we learned a lot from the past year with holding all of these virtual meetings that it's probably general best practice to break about every two hours. And so you'll need to convey to your stakeholders and to your presenters the importance of sticking to an agenda. And that's really for two reasons. One is because your remote attendees may need to jump in and out because they have other priorities that are going to be competing for their attention. 
You're also going to have some people that are um, participating remotely that may need to attend only certain portions of your agenda. Either way, they're going to have to rely on the times that are published. It's also going to be helpful for you as the event organizer in coordinating when your food and beverage in the room is replenished. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think we talked about that a little bit in this most recent event because uh, there were, some of these meetings ran a little bit long, right? But you needed to stick to a very specific <laughs> food and beverage schedule. So you want to tell us a little bit about how you handled that when, when you started to run over on time? Yeah, I mean, that actually happens a lot, even before COVID, right? And so as an event manager, you have to be able to uh, rework the agenda right on site, um, communicate that with your stakeholder, and then also communicate it with your um, event staff. And so I had a situation where we were running like 45 minutes over and um, it was cutting into our lunch break, which then would have pushed out the rest of our afternoon. So I decided to call an audible and I spoke to the event staff. I said, you know, instead of having lunch in our, our separate meeting space, we're just going to have the servers drop the lunch in the room, right? So just start dropping the salad. They'll get the hint. They will say, Oh, it's time to break. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what we did. And um you know, I made sure that once uh, people got through their first course, that we got the second course down, um, had the desserts brought into the room. And I think we we're able to finish our lunch probably in about a little over 30 minutes, which is pretty good if you've run events before. And we were able to get back on track for the rest of the afternoon. Okay, great. And so what else did you discuss with your uh, event manager at the hotel prior to joining uh, the for the actual event? So um, I started my conversations with all of my venues with reviewing the COVID protocols. And, you know, you want to make sure that you revisit that again before arriving on site because they can change. Um, And mine did change actually from when I first started building the program to about a week before we got there. Are you ready to elevate your career in 2024? I'm Maggie Olson, founder of Nova Chief of Staff Certification, the first-of-its-kind online course for aspiring and existing chiefs of staff. With curriculum taken directly from on-the-job responsibilities, Nova's self-paced learning modules provides you with hands-on experience so you can feel competent and confident moving into a chief of staff style role. It's the perfect next step for executive assistants. Head to leaderassistant.com Nova to learn more, grab the syllabus, and enroll today. Yeah. And um, what, can you give me some specific examples of things that maybe did change <laughs> um, various times throughout the planning process and how you communicated that? Yeah, it wasn't too many things that changed. Um, one being the mask mandate. I believe when we first started our event, um, there was no mask mandate. And then by the time we were ready to get there, they said they didn't want all guests to wear masks. So, you know, that's something that you want to prepare your guests for um, so that they arrive with the mask. Um, I also talk about what their check-in procedures are. You know, throughout the pandemic, there have been different stages of um, having contactless check-in versus checking in at the front desk, Um, even housekeeping, right? And making sure um, if there is a reduced or suspended housekeeping services while your guests are on site, you may want to warn them uh, about that. I also talked about precautions for servers and staff. 
Mm-hmm. Um, in my situation, the servers were uh, wearing gloves and um, all staff was wearing masks, including the servers. Um, and I believe they also provided vaccines to their staff, but it wasn't mandatory. Um, but she did mention that they had a pretty high uh, vaccination rate. Yeah. The other thing that's important to uh, talk about is developing a plan in case you have a positive case on site. Nobody wishes that, but it's just the reality of the world that we live in now. And so I wouldn't recommend doing that on your own. You should coordinate with your operations team if you have one, um, your testing provider and your event manager. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. And so um, let's talk about some contingencies you made in regards to the event space. And then also um, you mentioned about if you if you ended up having a, a COVID positive test, you know, what we were going to do with that as well. And you had a, a false positive at one point, didn't you? We did have a false positive. Um, and I'll talk about that a little bit later on. But in terms of uh, contingencies for the meeting space, you'll want to make sure that you have a larger space for AV at setup and to accommodate for social distancing. I don't think you need to do the six feet thing anymore. I mean, vaccines are readily available these days. Um, three feet is plenty, and that's not too far off from, from what we were doing before the pandemic. But you may also want to consider having um, the room ventilated especially if you have a smaller room. Having access to a window or even an outside door um, could be helpful. I think um, you should also think about considering outdoor space for your program. And that's not just for meals and networking, but even for meetings. One of my colleagues held a two-day meeting all outdoors. um, And thank God she's in California, so the weather was able to cooperate. And I don't know if I could do that here in D.C., especially in the fall. Um, And then I would also talk about um, having a separate space for your on-site testing. You really don't want to do that in your meeting room at all. Yeah. And so um, uh, tell me a little bit more about how you ended up splitting up, uh, you know, the the space and where you did for like flow in and flow out for testing because you had quite an extensive like check-in process for testing with for COVID, um, where people could enter, when people could exit, and making sure people stayed in the bubble. Is that right? Yeah, we did actually. Um, uh, for the testing, we made sure that everyone arrived masked, and um, we asked them to remain socially distanced. And um, again, because of the situation where we had a false positive. You know, you don't know until you run that test again if it really is positive or not. So that's the reason why you want to make sure that your attendees have masks and stay socially distanced. You can have them go back to their room um, if their room is ready. You can have them go uh, back to their car or you can have them outside um, socially distanced. We actually um, combined the check-in process. So instead of having our guests go to the front desk to check in, we asked them to come to our testing site. And we not only did the COVID testing, but we also did um, give out their swag and their room key assignments if the rooms were ready. So that's how we kind of made that check-in process a little bit easier for our attendees. 
Yeah, that's great. I remember back in my days working in hotels, we used to do satellite check-in spots. So that's great that you can combine that when you have a group in-house to make that kind of a one-stop shop. So, Mm -hmm. um, so, so now people are in the meetings. We talked briefly about uh, food and beverage and how you had to, to sort of move the meeting along. But just in general, in regards to, to food and beverage, what, what are venues offering nowadays? What, you know, what is sort of best practice or what have you found to be best practice in regards to um, meal service for your mm-hmm. attendees? Yeah. So, um, you know, the go-to for most meetings is buffet service, right? And the hospitality industry is so accommodating that if you ask them to do buffet service, chances are they will do it, but you have to consider your audience, right? And so not many people are going to be eager to jump in the buffet line. Um, And I get it. Buffets are cost-effective, but there are so many other options that you can consider, Bento boxes are a fun way for grab and go, especially for AM and PM breaks. Um, Plated meals are also a standby, but that can be time consuming depending on how many people you have. Interactive food stations are a lot of fun. I mean, who doesn't like going to um, pick out all their ingredients and have it made to order right in front of them? So I used to incorporate that in my events even before COVID. And then if you really, really can't get away from having a buffet service, you could also think about having staffed buffet. So instead of the attendees serving themselves in the buffet line, you would have um, staff servers and masks serving them kind of like cafeteria style. Okay. Um, now, as far as like, thoughts around if people really do want to do plated service, you know, are there, are there any things that you learn to help? Um, cut down on the time because you said that can be pretty timely in a, in a meeting situation if you are yeah. cut, you know, cutting it close. You know, it depends on how many people you have in your meeting. Typically, if it's about 20 to 25 people, um, you could get away with plated service. And, you know, of course, discuss this with your event manager. But some of the workarounds that I've come up with is to do a prefix menu because that's easier for the kitchen staff to prepare, you know, four or five items instead of dozens and dozens of items and combinations. You could also um, do a pre-order for each person. So an example of that is, let's say you have a lunch service at noon. So you would have your event manager print out the order forms for your prefix menu, whatever those items are, and then instruct your attendees to fill them out and to um, add their name or initials so that the kitchen staff can mark their plates as they come out and then collect those forms by mid-morning and you'll have your lunch um, by noon and, and everyone will know exactly what they got. Believe it or not, some people actually forget what they ordered just like two hours before. So um, the other thing that I have started doing recently, which has been a lifesaver, is to do expedited service. And so an example of that is like if you have a typical meal, let's say you're doing a salad, entree and dessert. I would have the salads placed before your guests arrive. As your guests are seated, they'll start eating their salads. And what happens is the servers will then swap out their plates and move them on to the next course as each person is done, as opposed to waiting for the entire party to finish their first course. So that's a good way of like moving things along without making your attendees feel rushed. 
And um, and this is making me a little bit sad for the virtual <laughs> attendees because like part of my favorite, one of my favorite things of going to conferences and meetings is the food when you stay at a great hotel or you have it in an awesome venue. So what yeah. did you do to try to bridge that gap? Um, yeah. Your attendees who were abroad, you did have to attend virtually. You know, I didn't do this, but I did think about it and I just didn't have the time to pull it together. But a nice touch would be to send snack packs or gift cards for meals to your virtual attendees. Um, that way they still feel like they are um, a part of the the meeting. Even, um, you know, if you're sending snack packs, you could send the same thing to all of your virtual attendees and they still feel like they are a cohort uh, within your audience. So it's just a nice touch to have. Yeah, we did that. We had a, our first virtual offsite a week ago. We mm-hmm. gave everybody a per diem to, to eat for because we had like a brunch and learn. And so we gave everyone a per diem so they could go ahead and order whatever they wanted. Um, oh, I like that. Still be included. Yeah. A brunch and learn. I got to see. Brunch and learn. Well, we're, all, we're all across many different time zones. So lunch yeah. for us is brunch or breakfast for everybody else. So it was like a, a good way for everybody to come together. I like um, that. Thank you. Um, so, so let's talk about like AV and just technology in general, right? Because yeah. it's glitchy. It's already difficult yeah. enough when you're in person. I, I feel for those guys at AV and hotels, I feel like it's always something that goes wrong. So what did you do? What did you do for audiovisual? Um, what systems did you use? I get this question a lot of like, what are the best sort of technology systems for streaming? And so I'd love to hear from you yeah. about what that looks like. You know, there are pros and cons for all of the streaming platforms out there, right? So pick your poison. Um Whichever one you choose, just make sure that you have the ability to mute your participants upon entry and deactivate the chime whenever someone joins. Um, I tend to use Zoom for these types of meetings because I like having the ability to use dual screens. So in my meeting space, I had two large screens, one that was for just the presentation itself. And then the second screen was for the speaker or the gallery view. And that pretty much mimics the view that we're looking at almost every day when we're working from home on our monitors. And I actually don't like running the presentations from my laptop. I tend to use a separate machine for that. Or if you're using Zoom, I had each of my presenters share their screen. And I do that so that I can preserve my machine for managing the Zoom call itself and engaging with our virtual attendees in Slack. Now, that said, I suggest using like a hardwired um, connection for the laptop that is running Zoom because um, it's easy to get kicked off like I did uh, once or twice during the meeting. Um, But another tip is to have a dedicated network so that you're not competing with other groups and guests for bandwidth in the hotel. Now, that probably will run you like maybe another $100 or $200 per day, depending on the speed. Um, But it's worth it, especially from all the money that you're saving on, you know, the virtual attendees that aren't traveling in. That's a good point. I mean, with that said, like if you think about the uh, the investment that you're saving, use that money towards getting a professional camera in the room because there are so many cues that you can pick up on um, by watching and listening at the same time, like body language and expressions and reactions, even just like figuring out 
you know, at what point in the room uh, a sound is coming from, your virtual guests actually do appreciate having that additional context, especially if they're going to be watching Zoom for, you know, more than one day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so what about audio too? Because you brought in some uh, somebody just dedicated to do your audio, correct? Yeah, yeah. So when you talk to your AV team about microphones and speakers, you want to make sure that you specify if you're doing it just for the streaming audience or if you're doing it to amplify the sound in the room or for both. My recommendation for microphones um, after doing a few of these is to use a gooseneck or a push to talk mic or a lapel mic for everyone in the room. I did that because I needed to have a conversational flow. And, um, you know, we had a, a strategy session with, um, you know, 40 of our, our leaders. Most AV companies, I don't know why this is, but they like to push the PZM or the flat mics. And those are the worst, in my opinion, because they pick up so much ambient noise, especially in the larger rooms. Um, and it usually just um, deteriorates the, the experience for your virtual attendees. Yeah, that's so interesting. I didn't realize so every single attendee physically in the space. Mm-hmm. So those that were watching it externally had a mic. Um, so that's really nice. So it does make it sound for people who are watching like they really are in the room. So that's awesome. Okay, yeah. great. Um, so you mentioned though, that if, if you do get pushed to do these, and I've never even heard of this. So PZM or flat mics, like how, how do you help sort of mitigate that ambient noise or that the louder like background noise? Yeah. I mean, even with the lapel mics and, and multiply that by 20 or 30 mics, it picks up a lot in the room. Um, so I did a couple of things. If you have your beverage station inside your meeting space, you should have your servers swap out the ice buckets before coming into the op- into the um, into the meeting space. The worst thing is when they come in and they dump all of that ice. Um, everyone can hear that. And if you're doing a working lunch, I would say have the servers remove um, having the servers remove the dishes can be pretty noisy. So I typically ask for extra bus trays so that everyone can kind of remove their dishes as they're done. Another thing that I've done is to avoid the use of um, a paper agenda or paper meeting material, because when you start shifting papers, it's like it it doesn't occur to you as an in-person attendee, but, you know, your virtual audience, they hear all of that. Mm -hmm. And um, even the same thing with having um, side conversations, that that buzz and chatter um, adds to the ambient noise in the room. Yeah, it's funny because you're right, like having paper and hearing like the crinkle or like the, yeah, I didn't even think of that. That's so <laughs> um, and so like any other tips to try to accommodate virtual attendees if they feel present or, um, you know, just as, as uh, important as the other people who are in the room? Um, you know, you just want to make sure that um, they're able to hear uh, well, because it's so annoying to be sitting on a, a Zoom call when all of your colleagues are, you know, in a meeting space and having happy hour and all that stuff. The best thing you can do is at least make their um, the time that they are on the call 
um, as easy as possible. And so, you know, I would remind your in-person attendees to repeat their names um, before making a comment or question, especially like in the beginning of the day, because that allows your remote attendees to get accustomed to the voices in the room. Mm-hmm. And I think you would also mention to me that you were using Slack, right? You had a Slack channel specifically for this event so people could communicate if they were having issues hearing or um, technical challenges, right? Is, do I yeah. know correctly? Yeah. Okay. Thank you for bringing that up because we are a Slack first company. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, actually, I did have a Slack channel for my virtual attendees because we wanted to I wanted to make sure that they were engaged um, with, with me. And if they had any questions about what was going on in the room, they were able to engage with each other. And, um, I was also able to make some tweaks to the AV in real time. Um, and as opposed to having them, you know, send me text messages and emails and having it disjointed, I was able to just walk over to my AV tech and just show him the responses that I was getting. And he was able to make the adjustments on the spot. Awesome. Okay, great. Um, And so as far as what you did with your AV team to prep them for all this in advance, is there anything that you did differently than what you did kind of in this pre-pandemic world? Yeah, um, I've only done this once or twice before, but um, this time I I used a third party AV company because the venue's AV team wasn't going to be able to accommodate my needs in terms of the large screens um, and the cameras. So I paid for on-site support to manage the soundboard and um, the professional camera. And because my AV person was in the room with us for, I don't know, two and a half days, I made sure that um, he signed an NDA because we were discussing confidential information. Um, That's not overkill. It's actually pretty customary for um, AV staff to do that. And um, he didn't bat an eye. The other thing that I did because he is now in our bubble um, is I asked him to get daily testing with us. And he was more than happy to um, to do that because for him, that also meant that he was in a safe space. So he appreciated that. And then another like good good citizen thing to do is to include your AV person, especially if it's someone that's going to be there all day with you, is to include them in your food and beverage headcount. Um, you know, most venues, almost all venues have a negotiated um, or a reduced rate for staff meals. Um, and sometimes they also throw it in for free. So it doesn't hurt to ask. And it's just a good little gesture for your your staff. Yeah, absolutely. And so speaking of testing, then you mentioned that when people arrived, you had the satellite check in and people got tested on site. But then um, did you, what else did you do for testing sort of throughout the program? Did you have require any additional testing? Um, no, I mean, we had the, the daily testing and that was the requirement that we had at the time uh, for our company. But I've seen where other people have decided to do every other day testing or just the first day testing. Um, when it comes to a COVID testing, you could either do at home testing kits Um, which basically means they're going to be sent to your attendees home in advance. You'll have them register in the portal and they'll do like a virtual appointment with the nurse to verify who they are and that they are the one taking the test. Those kits get sent out to a lab and depending on which test you took, those come back in about 24 to 72 hours. Mm -hmm. We did the on-site testing. um, And so 
What you'll want to do is to make sure you provide the patient health information so that your technician can have all the pre-printed paperwork and labels ready for your attendees. Um, the setup for that was pretty minimal. They just need access to like a trash can and tables and maybe some power. Um, and then I would say the, the setup time was probably about 30 minutes to unload and set up all of the machines. Mm -hmm. The thing that surprised me the most was, you know, after you take the sample, it takes about two to three minutes to prep each test. And if you multiply that by 10 people, that's 20 minutes. So make sure that you space out the testing if possible. And if I have an, I can just throw in an example where I prioritized my VIPs because I knew the meeting couldn't start without them. So I gave the names to the test collector in advance and I scheduled my VIPs to attend about 30 minutes before the general attendees and I also added like a 15 minute buffer to uh, allow the technician to prep and then run the test before collecting um, samples from the next group. Yeah. And what did you end up doing in regards to sharing results? Because obviously it's personal information. Um, you have to, there's a lot of rules and regulations and just also respect for people's, um, you know, personal stuff. So how yeah. did you go ahead and manage that? Yeah, so um, it's true. When you get the results back, they either come, uh, they always go to the attendees um, and it'll go through a portal or text or an email. So if the test provider is uncomfortable in sharing the personal health information with you as the event organizer, just put the onus on your attendees to show you their negative test results before entering the meeting space. And that was something I believe you told me that you communicated in advance when mm -hmm. preparing for people to come. So they knew that this was this was going to be happening, that that was going to be part of the protocol. Absolutely. So there weren't any surprises. That's right. That's right. And so people, you know, were able to have it already pulled up on their phone as opposed to like, oh, I got to log back in and figure out where it was. Um, they just came in and they were able to show it. Um, any other considerations or things you think people should know if they're going to be doing testing on site? Yeah, I definitely would have a separate room for testing and not do it in the meeting space, especially it, it's just unnerving if you get a positive test result back and then you're like, all right, folks, let's come in and sit down for the meeting. Um, I would also make sure that your attendees arrive masked and stay socially distanced. Um, you know, with the example I mentioned before of having someone with a false positive, you know, it's still positive until you test it again. So that's the reason why you should um, not allow your attendees to congregate until the test results are back in. And I would allow for extra time to retest an inconclusive or a positive test result. And um, I would also keep track of all your attendees when their test results are in. At that part, the testing provider can tell you whether it's in or not, um, whether they release what the test result is. That's that's another story. Yeah. And this came up in the chat. And um, so we thought we could talk a little bit more about what your communication plan looked like and how often you were checking in with attendees prior to them coming. And so what was your approach for um, communicating what to expect uh, before and during the entire meeting? Yeah. 
Um, it's a lot of communication. There's just no way around it because things are constantly changing and you're learning as you go. Um, I think one of the main things to focus on is just setting those expectations for your attendees, especially the in-person attendees, because the experience is going to be different than anything they've experienced before. And I would just keep emphasizing the fact that you want to keep everyone safe and thank them for their cooperation. Um, part of my communication plan also included a registration form. Um, we collected the patient health information for the testing, also the flight information, um, and all the other typical things that you would have in a registration form. I also threw in um, accessibility accommodations at Salesforce. That's something that's important to us. Um, and I actually had one attendee on site that didn't see well. And so his request was to be seated, you know, pretty close to the screen. In terms of on-site testing, you know, you want to make sure that you send that schedule out so everyone knows exactly what time they should arrive and remind them to please be prompt and to arrive during their testing window. You don't want too much of a backlog um, in that space. And I would also encourage people to self-report with some sort of an attestation form, remind them of the symptoms that they need to be looking out for and keep it top of mind that if they do test positive or are exposed to someone who has tested positive within that 14 window before your meeting, to have them report that to you and or to their manager. Yeah. And there's some other questions in here um, that have been asked. One person asked, how far in advance were you requiring people before arrival to have a negative test? Um, did you guys have a requirement of like 48 hours, 72 hours, five days? I've kind of seen it kind of yeah. run the gamut with different companies. Yeah, I we, we talked about this a little bit for my team. We did not have the requirement at the company level to do it, but we talked about it at our, our team level. We decided to not do it, but we did test people um, on the first day. I have seen where people have required a negative test result um, within 24 to 72 hours of arrival. Great. And another question that also came up um, was, uh, did you send any resources specifically to people to help them find, um, which sounds like you didn't require them to do any testing in advance, but have you had to do that where um, if people needed to get tested, they would send out resources of like local areas or places they can find testing sites? So um, one resource that has been great for me, and I didn't use it for this particular event, but I've used it before, is Vault Health. They will send the kits home to your attendees. And, um, you know, that's, again, what I explained before. Your attendee will go into the portal, register, and set up a virtual appointment with the nurse. They come on, they show their identification, and they, I think, break the seal for the test in front of the nurse to confirm that they are the person taking the test. And they, they actually do the swab um, right there in the Zoom call. That test has to be dropped off, I think, by that, that same day. So you want to make sure that you look for the, um, you know, which uh, shipping carrier your testing provider uses and determine you know, um, how far that drop-off location is from 
you know, whoever may be taking the test. I have an example where someone <clears throat> lived about two hours from a their closest FedEx or Dropbox. And so, you know, that's that's ridiculous to have someone drive four hours to drop off a test. So they ended up joining that meeting virtually. But it is possible to do. And I, I would highly recommend Vault Health. And for the vendor that you used for this particular event, was that a vendor that you researched and found on your own and brought in, or were they a recommended vendor by the um, by the hotel for the conference place? Um, that is something that I've seen um, internally and externally used by colleagues. Okay, perfect, awesome. Just getting through all these questions. Lots of people had questions about this. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so now that you like did this event, like in re- upon reflection, is there anything that you would have done differently, um, or that you want to do, you know, proactively next time? Um, you know, I think the 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 snacks for my virtual attendees. If I have more time to really build that part of the program out, I would have. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's just so many things, so many logistics to run on the ground. Um, You know, separating um, a regular in-person, like a completely in-person event to a hybrid event. There are some other things that I did do differently. And that would be sending daily summaries of what to expect for the next day for all of my in-person attendees. So, you know, after dinner, I would have a a communication go out that talked about the times and locations for the testing um, for the different cohorts, the locations of the meeting space and meals and any changes to the agenda. And then for my virtual attendees, I would send out the Zoom link for the next day, along with a detailed agenda um, with all the changes and links to the Slack channels that I mentioned before. Yeah, okay, great. Um, So as far as anything else that you think is relevant to share, otherwise we'll go through some additional questions that we had from people, but, um, and I think this was super helpful. Um, I think we'd also talked about just in general, like interacting with staff at these hotels and, um, you know, did you, did you see any differences in the way that, that you interacted with the staff or the staff interacting with you that people should be aware of at, at these locations? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, you know, most of the venues that I use, I've used for years. And so it was nice being able to see people again. Um, one thing that I've always tended to do is to like give a little something to the staff, um, whether it's a gift card or, um, a little thank you package or something, um, because you want them to be excited for when you come back to the property. Yeah. I remember when I worked in hotels, I would get so excited when we have, we have a lot of these like regular uh, groups that would come in house and I'd get like a leftover koozie or <laughs> some yeah. friends or, you know, and it was so fun. And you end up building relationships with, you know, these people who, you know, hold, hold meetings sometimes two, three, four times a year, which is really, really nice. Yeah, I did a sales kickoff a couple of years ago, and uh, somehow I ended up giving the general manager one of our Salesforce vests. He was thrilled. (laughs) So those things really do go a long way. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Well, I think we have still a couple more questions. So um, 
one person wanted to know if you've seen any reliable vendors for snack packs um, or just like swag to send people internationally or, or for those who can't attend. Do you have any like that are your go-tos? Oh my goodness. Ugh, I can't think of the name off the top of my head. I can see their website, but whoever asked the question, I will share that, um, that link with Megan and she'll send it out after the call. Yes. I will, I will send this recording and then any other things that you guys want to know that uh, in a link afterwards. So perfect. Um, so, so another question somebody had is, do you, ha- did you get any pushback um, on buffet or plated service? Um, this one person has used a lot of individually boxed meals um, and she's hoping to stop that soon. So have you received any feedback in regards from, from attendees or otherwise about their satisfaction with changing the, the meal service? No, uh, the question was, uh, did I have any pushback about changing to buffet or changing to boxed? Uh, To plate it, yeah, to plate it or boxed meals. No, I mean, I use the bento boxes for my um, AM and PM breaks. Um, And so the the venue that I use, they had these really upscale um, ways of delivering the food, whether it was mason jars or literally bento boxes. Um, So the presentation was really nice and appealing. Um, And then for the buffet, I did do a breakfast buffet on one morning and that was on the second day. We had already had two rounds of testing. So I felt comfortable that we had already been in the bubble um, and it was, it was for breakfast. Not everyone, everyone even eats breakfast. So, you know, it, it, it felt safe and there was no pushback. Okay, great. I actually, this is, we didn't talk about this at all, but I'm just asking from back in my days working in a hotel. Um, uh, did they do anything like your folks going to be talk about coffee service and tea service and reusing glassware? Um, Cause a lot of times people will do like coffee and tea breaks. So did, was everything disposable or are they back to using actual China? They're back to using China. Um, they actually have both in the room. And so people have their pick of what they use. Okay, perfect. Um, so did you have any issues um, or have you had an instance where you've had to confront somebody um, who is not abiding by the mask wearing rule? And if so, how did you handle it? There's always one. There's always one. Um you know, I did have someone who arrived at the test site without a mask and, you know, they come in, good morning, talking. And uh, I had some masks um, available, some additional masks that I brought from my own personal stash at home. And so I'm just talking back to him. And we're having a great conversation. I passed him a mask. He looked at it, smiled and put it on. So, you know, you just have to know how to how to get people to to comply. Fortunately, that wasn't an issue, but I understand that it could be um, an issue for other people. Yeah. Okay, great. Awesome. Um, Awesome. And then another person asked if there's, if you can share which venue you use, since it sounds like you had such a great uh, time there. And if not, (laughs) if you have any just top venues that you've worked with um, that you feel really comfortable recommending for in-person events. Well, you know, I have to remind everyone that I am based outside of Washington, D.C. And so I don't know how many of you are in this area, but um, the venue that I personally always love and have a great time is at um, the Inn at Perry Cabin. It is uh, 
very remote place um, in Eastern Shore, Maryland. Um, it's actually, I don't know if you've seen The Wedding Crashers, but that's where The Wedding Crashers was filmed. I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just a beautiful property um, and they have wonderful views and it's a really small and quaint town. And so we always feel like we are at a retreat when we're there. Yeah, I think that. But there are so many, so many great properties all over. Um, so. Yeah, I'm going to give a, a personal plug to my old hotel, Four Seasons Orlando. Um, they Good. have an amazing event space. Uh, I, I'm only slightly biased because I used to be on a sales team <laughs> there. Um, but one person did ask, well, what are your plans? Like, what do you recommend for people who are in the Northeast or in colder climates um, that uh, are moving into now winter who can't have necessarily so much of that indoor-outdoor? And so my recommendation is book in Florida. Um, <laughs> Is it sunny and warm year round? Um, but what do, what do you do for that, Lucretia? You know, with uh, the past year and how outdoor dining has kind of been transformed in all of our communities, a lot of restaurants and other um, hospitality outlets are buying these really impressive um um, heat space heaters, you know, the outdoor heaters, um, yeah. or they're even building these um, little igloo bubbles. And the, like, there's just so many different things that um, the hospitality and meetings and event industry are coming up with um, to uh, accommodate that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now I have another question that came in. So uh, one of our, one of our, um, attendees is saying that they have a group of more senior execs um, that yeah. aren't as tech savvy. Any recommendations on how to tailor a lot of these suggestions to those who may not be as savvy using a smartphone? Now, are you talking about in terms of getting their test results? That's an um, excellent question. Julie, do you want to clarify? <laughs> I mean, if I it is... Yeah, but I would say test results, but then also maybe even for people that are physically um, attending and maybe aren't as savvy with Slack or with Zoom, is there anything that you did to help prepare for those individuals? Yeah, I mean, in terms of the test results, you can work with your testing provider to have um, the test results uh, sent by email, right? Um, so it's not going into a portal or going into... Um, um, yeah, so it's not going into a portal. They can also probably do it by text message. So that's okay. pretty low tech right there. Um, in terms of Slack, I mean, I'm biased. So <laughs> Slack is super easy to use. Um, and uh, other than that, I'm not really sure if I had more specifics about uh, where that technology issue is. Yeah. So she said it was for the test results. So she said a oh. uh, text message would work. So that's great. Yeah. If they have an option to just text the test results. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I had uh, another two people ask, what have you done for morale or team building events, especially with a hybrid component of some people physically being in the room together and other people being on video? You know, I haven't had to do this yet. And it's something that I've been kind of percolating on, but I, I don't see why you can't do a VTO um, event. Um, so VTO, what does that oh, mean? Oh, sorry. So that's, um, that's, a, that's a Salesforce term, volunteer <laughs> time off. Um, oh. 
so you could do something, you know, in the in your in your space and have your virtual attendees do an online virtual um, volunteer opportunity. There are a ton of resources out there for online volunteer events. So um, I don't know that you necessarily have to have everyone doing it at the same time. Um, and I don't even know if it makes sense to have your virtual attendees watching the people in the room and vice versa, but you could set up two concurrent events. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, Let's see. Uh, This might be just sort of a high level summary, but um, do you have any major guidance for someone who's planning an event for 35 people abroad with 16 of the participants being involved in cross-border travel? Hmm. Any suggestions? I mean, following some of the the protocol that I mentioned today, just looking at, you know, where are you going to have your event and starting there? What are the the transmission rates? Um, And then looking at your attendance list, who's traveling from where and what those requirements are. Um, If you have a lot of attendees that are flying in and they need a fit to fly test in order to return to their home countries, figure out um, what those testing requirements are. Some of them are 72 hours before boarding. Some are 48 hours before boarding. So you may want to bring on an on-site testing provider to make it easy for them as opposed to having them, you know, complete the portable testing kits. Um, Those would be my biggest two is making sure that people arrive there safely and can get home and not get stuck at customs. I would agree with that. I think that's the, probably the trickiest part is the, the customs piece. Yeah. Well, well, this was amazing, Lucretia. I really appreciate your time today. We've been talking about doing one of these for quite some time, so I'm so glad we finally got it on the books. Anything yeah. else that you want to share um, before we wrap up for the day? No, I mean, uh, I would love to work with anyone who, um, you know, is planning an event and um, I know it can be challenging. Some people just don't have the the stomach for it. And I get it. Planning events and being an event manager is nerve wracking. That just comes along with the territory. Um, But it truly is a passion of mine. And um, it's one of the reasons why I love coaching, too. So I'd love to help anyone who. is interested in, in getting more uh, coaching on event planning and management. Awesome. Yes. And as a reminder for all of you that are joining us, um, I will be sending out an email. We'll also get a link of some of those recommendations from like Rachel will include in that email. Um, but it'll include this recording. And then also, if you are interested in working with Lucretia, um, she is a, a coach here at Talk Advisors. She does an amazing job. We love her. She's, she's a mentor of mine as well. So um, we'll, we'll include that information so you can get with t- in touch with us if that's something you're interested in. So thank you so much, Lucretia. I hope you have a great rest of your day and I hope all of you have to as well. Thanks. Bye, everyone. Thank you again to Megan Strout from TAC Advisors for sharing that conversation with Lucretia. Uh, please check out the show notes at leaderassistant.com slash 142. And don't forget to check out our sponsor for this episode, Elkhorn Peak Sellers. Elkhornpeak.com slash leader assistant. Please review on Apple Podcasts. Gobullos.com.